Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. And central political political centralization is important in China because um, they determine the future of the local officials. So, if you're party secretary or governor or a provincial governor or a mayor, right? Uh, your promotion uh, into the higher run depends on how well you've done with economy. Well, it's definitely something we should keep an eye on because it presents a potential factor for causing social instability. I wouldn't quite go there yet because I put real estate even before youth yeah. unemployment. Yeah. Um, how widespread it is? I mean, look, I've heard numbers from quarter to fifty percent. They're not going to do this at the risk of creating systemic risk. Okay, they're going to the the bottom line is to not have real estate have a hard landing or a systemic create a systemic financial risk, but they will start to make some examples of certain companies, and examples in their mind would be sufficient. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode thirty of Trium Connects. You know, occasionally you read a book that changes the way you think about a topic or place. The New China Playbook: Beyond Socialism and Capitalism by Kei Jin is just such a book, and it was great to have her join me to discuss its themes here on the show. One of the questions the book attempts to answer is how can a country which, in many areas of life, lacked the rule of law, had poor and/or opaque corporate governance with major state interference in the economy? And had negligible intellectual property right protection, have by any measure achieved tremendous economic growth and lifted millions and millions out of poverty. The answer, as you would expect, is super complicated. Jin argues that it involves the consequences, both intended and unintended, of the one-child policy, the combination of a strong political centralization coupled with economic decentralization. The so-called mayor economy and the combination of a super powerful yet agile state, able to act much more quickly than more democratically constrained actors. Jin argues that to understand China, you really need to read it in the original. That is, as much as possible, not through the lens of Western and capitalist assumptions about economic development, but to see it for what it is and what it does within its own terms. Jin is a great guide for this journey. She was born in China, educated in the U.S., where she earned her B.A., Master's, and Ph.D. from Harvard, and she now lives in London. She's an associate professor of economics at the London School of Economics, and her research focuses on global trade imbalances, global asset prices, and China's economic growth model. Jin has also advised and consulted for the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The book ends with a discussion of the current challenges facing China. Jin argues that the reforms and policies which created the tremendous economic development over such a comparative short time must now change if China is to avoid a version of the middle income trap. Whether it is able to do so will, in no small measure, shape what kind of world we're all going to live in. Jin's background, insights, and deep knowledge shine through in the book and in our conversation. And so, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Kyu Jin. Kyu Jin, welcome very much to Trium Connects. Thanks so much. Great to be with you, Matt.、Uh, it's wonderful to have you.、Um, 
you know, I just finished your new book, The New China Playbook, Beyond Socialism and Capitalism. And it's a really great book. I mean, it's super rich and covers really so many fascinating topics. And, you know, once in a while, uh, a book comes along that changes the way you think about a place or a topic. And this is definitely one for me. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the uh, kind of themes that are in the book today, but we're only scratching the surface. It's it's such a rich read that I would recommend anybody uh, listening here, pick up a copy and, and read it for yourself because it, it is really excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Great to know that, Matt. Thank you. Well, I tell you what, let me start. Um, and, and you kind of start this way. If I started describing a country, which in many areas of life kind of lacked the rule of law, let's say had poor or, or opaque kind of corporate governance with major state interventions or interferences, had negligible intellectual property right protection, usually the, the line that would come next would be, and that's why it's not doing so well. Um, but in China, by any measure, you've achieved kind of tremendous economic growth, lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty. And you call this in the book kind of the China puzzle. And you argue that the answer to this puzzle, this riddle, can only come from reading China, China in the original. I wonder if you could tell me, what do you mean by that, reading China in the original? Uh, well, yes, thank you, Matt, for that question, because I, I really do like the opening line of my book, which is reading China in the original, not lost in translation or not lost in perspective, which is uh, so often the case. Uh, original means original everything, the people, uh, the, the culture, the history, the government put it, you know, use a, a different lens to evaluate China to look, look at China through its own lens, rather than through an outside lens. And that that would be a very healthy exercise um, and useful exercise, especially in today's age. Um, and so when we when we use the canonical Western economics model, we are bound to predict um, economic uh, failures or stagnations in a Chinese economy, which you described, uh, that uh, that satisfies all these conditions, but yet it has defied, con defied conventional wisdom. And there have been so many times that uh, the West has predicted a China's, China's economic and political collapse. And it just reminds me of, I think it was Mark Twain's quote, you know, news of my death is greatly exaggerated. <laughs> every few years, every few years. And so with that in mind, I think, you know, we want to question, you know, is the canonical Western model uh, really the only one that works? Um, or using it as a benchmark to better understand why China was able to overcome some of the what's considered necessary conditions for development and growth. Okay. Well, I think that's a, a great setup. And what I'm going to try to do is concentrate on kind of three different areas that you go through in the book that, that starts to build a kind of, as you said, a picture of this from, from a China perspective, if, if such a unilateral kind of unified thing exists. But the three things I want to talk about today are, are the one-child policy and its consequences, as you describe it in the book, maybe the characteristics of this decentralized economy, because we usually think of China as such a kind of centralized place, but that refers to the political sphere and not necessarily the economic sphere. And then and then maybe we can get on to some questions about what does the future hold um, mm -hmm. and, and how we can avoid some of these misunderstandings that come from viewing things too much from our own perspective. Mm -hmm. 
But but maybe we could start with the one-child policy um, and the consequences of this. And you spend a lot of time in the book talking about this. And I and for me, it was one of the most fascinating parts. Now, um, one of the largest social experiments ever ha- happened in China, probably in the history of all of humankind, with the one-child policy. And I think it's really easy for us in the West not to understand the full consequences of that. A, a world where you have no brothers or sisters and no cousins and no aunts and no uncles. And you have this inverted triangle of the family structure, right? You know, four grandparents, two parents, and one child. And this affects so many things in China today. And and one of the things that you describe really, I think, in great detail, and with a lot of interest on my part anyway, was how it's affected consumptions and savings patterns. And can you tell us how unique China is actually when it comes to household savings and how this connects to the one-child policy? Yes, Matt. Well, in fact, um, it's true that my generation, the first generation of one-child policy, you know, kids, um, we don't have siblings. Uh, And that was the case for all of my classmates, except for one Uyghur classmate of mine. Uh, who was a very good friend of mine, and she 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 had a sibling because the minority uh, uh, ethnic groups were not subject to the one-child policy. But it's not true that we don't have cousins and uncles and aunts because our parents had lots of siblings, in fact. And okay. luckily, luckily, they loosened the policy so that our next generation uh, can have siblings. Uh, so uh, even though they don't uh, have cousins, uh, they they have each other. So uh, it was really one generation where we we had no we had fewer fewer um, relatives, and it was odd, um, but that that kind of became the norm. And I think above and beyond economic consequences, which is really my research area, there were some really profound social consequences, which I'll also sure. mention. Also mentioned that in the book. Um, first of all, Chinese household saving is astronomically high. Uh, if you think about a growing economy and, uh, you know, you might not be thinking that you'd be saving more and more as you get richer and richer, right? You expect mm. a certain level of income growth and um, you start to save less over time, just like the Japanese and the Koreans uh, after a certain period of time. And it was also just recently during the pandemic, post-pandemic household saving rate shot up to 50%. Wow. Uh, that yeah, that that compared to five percent, even less than five percent in an American household is, of course, um, a, a stark contrast. Not to mention comparing with other developing countries like India and Brazil, maybe fifteen percent household saving rate. I mean, still um, a very very uh, large difference. And so I wanted to, you know, understand how the one child policy, which was really meant to control population, so sure. um, stem the population spiral out of control um, had these economic consequences. There's, and here, here comes the interesting cultural and historical factors, which is one of my arguments in the book that we cannot ignore, even when we're thinking about political economy. And that is um, children took care of parents in the past. So for instance, uh, my, my father uh, um, with his four other siblings jointly take care of their parents, whether it's cohabitation or financial support. And that yep. was in generational support was a Confucian tradition. Hmm. Now, imagine that you had fewer kids. Actually, you have only one child. Um, uh, first of all, you don't spend as much. Uh, you might spend more on that child because everybody wants the 
child now to become a dragon and a phoenix in the Chinese um, uh, <laughs> context. <laughs> and so they pile up, uh, you know, education investments on this one child, but still an aggregate, you, you know, holding else everything constant, you, you spend less on aggregate. But also mm. you have to start saving for yourself. You don't expect that one child to be able to support you fully or provide you a sufficient support in the future. So there's a tendency um, to want to save for your own old age. And that goes back to a, a culture where they used to think now, no, no matter whether it was really true in practice or not, they thought, okay, we, we want to have sons. Uh, that was primarily because son provided that old age uh, support in, in China. So suddenly you have one child and uh, household savings go up. And we, we see this uh, by comparing one child policy or sorry, one child families with twins, families who had twins. Uh, luckily, you get to keep your twin if you happen to have a twin, <laughs> not subject to one child policy. So yeah. you can really extrapolate the differences there. Uh, but I think more, more. Um, so, so I think that that explains, at least from our research, 20 to 30% of the rise uh, in saving rate uh, in the last, um, you know, two decades or so. So that's a significant. But I think just going beyond there, I think there's so many other consequences. First of all, as I mentioned, because there's only one child, there's going to be much more competition. Uh, competition for education resources. Again, you want that child to be the absolute best. And so, uh, and education costs have risen partly because of the demand uh, uh, from households. And it has gotten so, um, uh, so extreme that the most popular national uh, TV show in China is around how to get your kids into school. And that was very popular. And on the other on the other side of it is that is also source has also become the source of um, the biggest source of uh, angst among the Chinese people. Mm. You know, imagine all the Chinese ordinary Chinese families um, uh, uh, having to uh, think think you know being pressured to sending their kids to many many different tutors just so as to not fall behind. And yeah. then led on to the education crackdown, sexual crackdown, et cetera. So you can see that this has um, had major uh, uh, social consequences beyond. Now, a positive aspect, which I think is underemphasized, but I really love this, uh, this, this idea, and I believe a consequence is the rise of the status of women. Uh, so they before they used to educate boys before girls, and now you only have one child, mm. and that daughter is going to get just as much education as the boy. We've seen in the data that returns to education to girls is actually higher than return to education in boys. And then also looking at surveys, those born after the one-child policy um, are exerting leadership roles um, in public companies and political positions uh, significantly more than um those uh, in the previous generations. Uh, so by having less children, you actually incidentally raise the status of the women. And there are other many, many other consequences yeah. uh, uh, that I'm sure, you know, are very of great interest um, to everyone. No, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. So your, uh, your parents, you have one child, there's all kinds of things kick in, as you said, you know, if, if you are traditionally depending on your children to have some sort of intergenerational transfer of wealth in some ways. Um, and that's not long, no longer, you know, the base of that transfer is not very wide anymore. Then you do th two things. As I understand it, you save more because your costs are less and you're going to rely on them more mm -hmm. and you invest a load more uh, in that child. That's in addition to all the concentrated love and care and affection and et cetera, et cetera. But you, as you said, you, you, it's kicked off a kind of educational arms race. 
Um, right. and, and with increased pressure on the kid and on the parents, I mean, and, and some of this is, it's become quite expensive. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's become prohibitively expensive, so much so that nobody wants to have children anymore, you see. So that's that's one of the reasons why fertility is so low. Uh, and the other really interesting consequences on housing. So people used to remark, and this is a puzzle, how is it possible that you can afford um, housing, housing with exorbitant prices with such little income uh, on the part of the young? And one of the answers is that this young person has six wallets, right? If you have a spouse and you, the, the, the parents on both sides all chip in, not to mention yeah. potential grandparents. So um, that that is also explaining how, how it's possible. Another really interesting consequence is that um, the one-child policy is associated with a gender uh, inequality um, or, or uh, missing women, fewer women. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's in the, because the status and bargaining power of the women, uh, the marriage market has become so competitive that, uh, you know, all bachelors want to own a house uh, yeah. to, uh, to, to, to seem, you know, eligible in the 19th century Jane Austen uh, way. And that, that's important <laughs> as well. So that's drove, driven housing prices up, too, because of the, that implicit demand. So lots of really yeah. interesting things going on. Super, a lot of things spin out of that that maybe you wouldn't expect at the beginning. Now, you also say that it, the inverse to this high savings rate for that generation is a relatively low level of consumption spending, as you said. But you argue that this is generational and that the one-child policy, the, the, the consequences of those, people like yourself and et cetera, they, they have different consumption patterns than their parents and that these different consumption patterns are going to have a big impact on the economy as a whole and how China interacts with the rest of the world. Can you can you have a deep a little deeper dive into that and tell us what you mean? So first of all, the people who are saving more because of the one child policy are my parents' generation. That's Not right. Me. Yeah. So that's one one distinction. It's they who need to save more. First of all, my generation no longer has that one child policy constraint. In fact, sure. we are now suddenly encouraged to have as many children as possible. Uh, <laughs> a, dramatic, a dramatic outright uh, change from the one-child policy. And so the point here is that my generation is also different. Now, this might not might have or might not necessarily have something to do with being the only child. I, I think it has something to do with it because, first of all, you grew up in relative privilege. All eyes and all love and all investment were on you. You feel more secure. You're less risk averse and you're more willing to spend. Um, it could also be just a generational change where, you know, yes, the, the country is getting uh, richer and the new generation who haven't gone through the vicissitudes that my parents' generation have uh, over the cultural evolution and the turbulence, etc., um, they don't need to save as much. Uh, so we've seen that that shift in consumption habits across generation, I think has major consequences, not only for China, but also in the world, because China is known to be a saving nation. Well, what about China as a borrowing nation or consumption nation? Well, this mm. group of people love to borrow and spend beyond their means. Uh, so 85% of consumer credit is accounted for by those under 35. Wow. You get, yeah, you get college students without any income uh, and, and and with it facility of um, facilitated by technology, one click on Taobao, on Alibaba, and that gets you the loan to buy a lipstick. Um, so, and they're, they're happy to do that, right? So they borrow a lot, they spend a lot, and it's about lifestyle consumption. It's no longer about saving for a rainy day. Now, 
who ends up paying for the debt? Maybe their parents end up paying for the debt, right? Um, because it's an intergenerational transfer. Again, this is something very distinct to the canonical Western economic model where you have everyone maximizing their own utility of consumption. Here, we're really talking a lot of dynamics uh, of intergenerational uh, households and altruism. Right. Um, so I think they're big consumers. They like to spend, they like to, you know, I think the data show they spend almost twice as much or even about twice as much on apparel, despite having less income than those in the middle age, a lot more on food, a lot more entertainment and traveling. So that's all in the data that, that a new lifestyle. And I think that has important consequences on the world as they travel around and they demand, you know, higher quality products and services, mm. etc. Let me just try to understand, because in the book that you, you talk a lot about the new generation and how it's different. And we, we've just talked a little bit about its its consumption. And I love these uh, examples of, of just how different things are sometimes, as you said, the buying of the lipstick. And if I understood right, in the West, let's say maybe you'd have a credit card and you would charge it on the credit card. But there, what would happen is you could take a little kind of micro loan and that would be administered through the site. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, one click. Yeah. And so so you have you have that as a difference, but you kind of get this combination of a one-child policy, then lots of economic growth and prosperity, and then high educational achievement, um, and lots of investment in in kind of uh personal development or 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 gener or, you know, through the education kind of social capital goes up. And you you write about the importance of the difference in this new generation versus their parents and grandparents. And you, you also argue that there's been this kind of fundamental shift in attitudes and values. Um, and you say that, for example, the current generation is the first to seek happiness uh, more than wealth. And you also say that the generation will likely reverse China's trade imbalance. And we've talked a little bit about that and turn it into, uh, rather than a current surplus into maybe a deficit. How, how how confident are you in these predictions about this this new generation? Do you think that the the differences will fade through time, or is this kind of a really permanent difference in in people's social attitudes and spending spending habits? I think the biggest gap is certainly my parents' generation with my generation, the first one child policy generation. That will be the biggest gap I think we'll see in modern history. I mean, they and their parents were more similar. And me, my children's generation will be more similar and so forth. And so first of all, you know, the current account surplus has already closed somewhat in China. Um, uh, uh, you know, that that could be due to other economic factors, but I think this will only continue. Um, I'm positive about the younger generation for a variety of reasons. Of course, there are concerns like the youth unemployment right now is very high. And I worry about the macroeconomic uh, con conditions and environment and what it means for them. But just looking at in terms of their values, and this is coming from a variety of surveys, international surveys conducted across the generations, uh, they definitely display more openness, more appreciation for diversity. They care about social issues like environment, animal rights, and social equity. Um, they uh, before 2017 and maybe Trump marked a slight turn. You know, they 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 liked you know Western values. They appreciated their system. Um, although uh, I don't think there's any evidence that they want China to be like that. But because their fluidity and cultural culture and language, they saw a, you know a larger world, and and many of them have gone and studied abroad. Um, and I do believe, you know, their way of communication is also um, more global, softer, if you will. 
and they 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 really can provide a better bridge um, just because they also understand uh, better the cultures and values of the outside world just as you know my original assumption was we we understand china little of course the yeah. go same direction although the other way around um but they're also a more relaxed bunch now it's true that there's some fantastic entrepreneurs um uh, the ones born in the post 80s i think average age of unicorn companies so private companies with a billion dollar valuation or more is around 30 something right 30 early 30s under 35 so uh, they're very very entrepreneurial but i think on the whole they've also they they're not the they're just not the generation of foxconn workers who would opt to work three shifts per night just to earn that extra income and that has major consequences on the economy as a whole so for one many of them highly educated might not be willing to take up you know manufacturing jobs even though that's where the jobs are even though china lacks skilled labor blue collar laborers in manufacturing they might say hey you know I'm so educated. Why do I want to do that? I'd rather stay home in my parents' house. Yeah. Um, it has the downside. Uh, so there's a mismatch of education and skill um, because education has raced ahead of the economy, maybe also because of the one-child policy. You know, every, all the parents will think that their kids can, should get educated rather than send, the, send them off to make vacation, vocational schools and uh, yeah. work earlier. Um, uh, so, but there's also a flip side, which is a little more positive, which is, you know, used to they used to believe that China crushed it in terms of globalization because everybody was so hardworking, so productive, and so ruthlessly hungry. And that's not the same generation. That's not the that's not in the younger generation anymore. Yeah. So they they pursue more of their passions, their interests. Uh, some of them will want to do something more impactful. Um, and I think that would be a positive as well. It just make China a little mm -hmm. bit less, you know, hungry. So I worry like you do sometimes about the unemployment rates. And um, again, this might be because I'm not reading uh, in, in the original, as you say, because I'm, I'm reading it from outside sources. But it seems like it'd be really hard to have all this invested in you, um, all the education invested all the time, a lot of ex family expectations. You, you come out of the system with a, a good degree and then there's, there's no, kind of no job for you and you end up living at home and is it how widespread is that problem i mean i've tried to do a little bit of research to look at youth unemployment rates and it's a big big place and it's very complex but can you give an idea kind of up to date what what's your feeling of what are the what is this a is this a big problem little problem something that's going to be we should keep an eye on where, where are we with this well, it's definitely something we should keep an eye on um because it um presents a potential factor for causing social instability. I wouldn't quite go there yet because I put real estate even before youth yeah. unemployment. Yeah. Um, how widespread it is. I mean, look, I've heard numbers from quarter to 50%. Yeah. Uh, I do think a lot of it has to do with the cyclical factors of an economic downturn uh, okay. rather than assuming that's permanent. But I do think that, so that's a cyclical component, but the structural component is a uh, component is precisely that, that mismatch. But the government is actually doing a number of things. First of all, it has to raise the status of vocational schools and vocational jobs uh, rather than be a subject of discrimination. So they have expanded in the last couple of years, vocational schools, training, and the quality and number of vocational schools. So trying to shift the sentiment away from it. And like you said, it's really a problem of expectation 
solutions, right? How do you uh, pacify a group of people who, who believe they had a better future with an education is, is something that is very difficult. So there's psychological uh, impact that the government will be, you know, will need to heed. Um, but, you know, when push comes to shove, um, there's really 900 million people in China in the rural areas who are still not really middle income by international standards and the rural population you know they're they're still very hungry if you look at if you look at you know the delivery uh, uh guys and the, the you know logistic guys and, and there are many many of them in china they, they all are still very um, eager to work so that adjustment will take some time i think that because there's that intergenerational safety net um, you know, it really sucks not to have a first job, but, you know, it's also not, um, you know, life altering um, and maybe gradually changing the perception. Right. It's, it's another another thing is also what we call economic economists call the reservation wage, you know, kind of the bottom line wage. Hmm under which you won't want to work for something. And it's pretty high for urban youngsters because, you know, you get to live with your parents and then you, you, you've, you've been brought up in relative privilege. Um, so I think it's something to watch, but like like I mentioned, I think real estate is something that concerns everybody. Yeah. Uh, unemployment is something that parents are worried about, but have not, you know, made it a foregone conclusion for the potential future of their children. Often what happens is, Youth that have this kind of expectation, the expectations aren't getting met. There's there's frustration. Often this is a fertile ground for, as you said, social unrest. Or, and I, I just wondered, is there kind yeah. of generational differences with kind of more virulent forms of nationalism in China? Um, and uh, I, I say that because in the U.S., you you see, and in Europe, you see some of the most fertile grounds are in populations had that had an expectation for a future that looks like it's not possible anymore. And that's is where a lot of kind of more, they're more attracted to uh, less, let's just say less subtle political arguments. And I'm just wondering if we see the same thing in that subpopulation within China. I, I think the main difference between China and the youth and other countries that have you know, let's say express their dissatisfaction, um, whether it's um, in the Middle East or Hong Kong or et cetera, is first of all, coming back to the government, right? This government will actively real time, maybe not real time, but in a very short period of time, will engage and try to change things very rapidly. Sure. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the vocational school training is, is happening. I think they're coming out with policies um, that subsidizing companies to offer internships. A lot of the problems also these these kids don't have these young people don't have hands on experience. They're not going to let this brew and fester in the way that in Hong Kong inequality has built up so long. Housing prices are so expensive. Young people really don't see a future for decades. Okay, and they don't they can't do anything about it. I think they realize the importance of this. They're actively going to work on it. Um, I I would say that one 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 positive thing about the government, as I mentioned also in the book, is the flexibility and the ability to adapt really relatively rapidly, maybe because of without political constraints, once they've identified a problem. And mm. they have their ears peeled to the ground. I, I'm sure they're listening to this and thinking about this actively. 
And uh, well, first of all, they have to deal with a lot of internal challenges currently, but they're not going to let this kind of problem just brew for a very long time. Okay. And there are ways to there are ways to there are ways to get around this, right? There are jobs around, like I said. There's 25 million vacancies in manufacturing. There's 300,000 talent gap in semiconductors, and they're they're going to work on it. So they they will address it. Yeah. Okay. I think. You document in the book, and I think it's obvious the state has so much capacity, but sometimes there seems to be a dynamic, and the dynamic we see in different parts of the world as well, and I don't think that there's any real solution to it, and and you identify this as a, as a big challenge with, with for China going forward, and let me try to set up the question so you can understand how my, you know, little mind works in this in this sense. I mean, I, I'm thinking about this I, this problem of systemic inequality that results from a kind of compound effects of a meritocracy. So the idea would be something like this. So everybody starts out with one child and you start out more or less in the same position. So you have high equality, but not a lot of high economic status. So, and this is kind of at the start of, uh, of let's say your generation. And then you get huge and expensive co competition emerges with resources poised onto that single individual to pour as much education and opportunity into that person as possible. And winners emerge from this um, through some combination of that parental investment, natural ability, luck, um, their own ability to transfer skills, become successful, successful entrepreneurs, et cetera. And the winners, as you said, partner with other kind of winners because it's a competitive market for partners as well. And you each kind of enter into this super competitive marriage market with lots of pluses. And then they go on to have children. And now those children have many more advantages than the children without such advantages. And the competition then increases even further, leaving more and more families kind of unable to compete with the children of the people who won in the first kind of race. And this has a tendency, as it, as it does, in, at least in other countries, that it cements in place a kind of elite class mm -hmm. who tend to justify their elite position and their advantages through this kind of quote unquote objective tests like university entry exams. And it gives them this kind of patina, this, this, this idea that they are elites because they deserve to be elites, because they are more meritocratic than anyone else but it's because of the consequences of some past competition where everybody started more or less the same, but you get these compounding effects. Mm -hmm. So what my question is really is what happens to a Chinese society, which has kind of deeply rooted values of equality, at least equality and opportunity, when it's dominated by kind of super educated, wealthy, more or less permanent uh, class connected to lots of different political groups, as well as economic groups. And this may be particularly a problem as more and more basic services in China become more privatized. So education, medicine, pensions, insurance, et cetera. And, and this is what you see as a key economic growth area going forward. So the question really, it's a, it's a long setup, I apologize, but you argue that the way forward for China in the next stage of economic development will require more reform, greater use of markets, greater services markets in education and pensions, et cetera. But it's these very things that will add fuel to this inequality through this meritocracy trap. And you argue that China wants to have this olive-shaped income distribution, which I think that almost every country wants to do, 
but I'm not sure how that becomes possible. And I guess my question, maybe this is this is too provocative, but would China prefer to be poorer but more equal or richer and less equal? And when richer and more equal don't seem possible, at least anywhere else in the world, what do you think? Well, I think you've hit a very important um, question slash dilemma for China going forward as part of the new playbook. First of all, one thing that connects to your last question is the service sector, right? This is something I wanted to mention, which is that is going to offer lots and lots of jobs for the youth. Why? Because first of all, right now, it only accounts for 52% of GDP, whereas the norm for advanced economy is 80%. Yeah. It only accounts for 47% of employment, where that number should be 80%. And services actually absorb more higher educated labor force than compared to manufacturing. So this is actually something where by actively lowering the barriers to entry and expanding private uh, sector participation that you will actually um, help at least alleviate some of the, the pressure on employment, especially youth. But coming back to the inequality uh, issue, I think inequality is a major issue and inequality has uh, grown very rapidly, not quite yet to the US levels, but converging to the US. It was more like Nordic levels in 1978. Mm -hmm. um, but the primary, the biggest part of the inequality is geographical, not within cities, not within, you know, the urban class, but rural to urban. And that geographical divide where you have the eastern coast of China, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, etc, reaching levels of incomes like South Korea, right? Really a rich country contrasted with the really, really poor central and Western provinces, sometimes almost to less developed countries' uh, income. So, so that geographical divide is, explains the majority of the income inequality. And that has to do with, well, first of all, policy. So for instance, the hukou, so the restrictions to move across provinces, you know, you're basically tied to your um, you have a hukou that's tied to your birthplace, and if you want to move to work in another place, it's a complicated process. So that has slowed down. So if you look at the, the migration flows across provinces, because of the prohibitively high cost, including the hukou cost, um, it's actually significantly lower than compared to a country like India. And that we have estimated, as economists have estimated, that this also drags down efficiency and um, you know, uh, contributes to misallocation of resources, et cetera. So, uh, and there are some other reason, uh, re reasons uh, for that geographical divide. So I'd say that first and foremost, that's the inequality that China needs to tackle to bring greater equality. And that does not conflict with growth, right? That does not mean that you need to reduce growth to increase in quality across the regions. I don't think there's a tension there. But coming back to what you are driving at, which is that, you know, that basically what all countries that ex had experienced growth through capitalism all had to experience, which is that um, compounding effect, you know, through the generations. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a problem. I'm going to be very loose here, not as an economist, um, but through my casual observations, I don't think there's um, really a lot of work on this because really we're talking about the second generation uh, uh, yeah. among the policy uh, that's really the, the the you know the 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 second generation here and you know just from casual observation i say there is a redistribution uh, effect here because 
look, you know, the best universities are still attended by the ones who get the best grades. And they will be the ones naturally who you know have worked the hardest. And yes, there's some something about uh, uh, educational, uh, you know, tutors and stuff, but not really uh, primarily because of that. And you also see the second generation being a little bit less uh, ambitious. Um, I'd say that most of the entrepreneurs uh, that have really made it, even among the younger generation, really come from a family of really very little background. I don't know in what sense there's slight, you know, redistribution in that sense, um, but I work through casual observation where we're seeing a little bit of that. And I, I'd say the drive of the Chinese people has been a really significant factor contributing to their individual success as well as the nation's success. Um, also, a lot of these people actually study end up studying abroad. Why? It's actually too competitive because it's so meritocratic um, in the stri strict standardized testing. These young, uh, these uh, second generation wealthy families actually can't really compete necessarily on those dimensions. So many of them actually study abroad. Um, but that doesn't fundamentally answer your question, which is actually the outcome, right? Putting aside the education, you know, a meritocracy was the most um, was the bedrock of Chinese society for for the longest time because it was really through there and that came, you know, even a thousand years ago um, in the Confucian tradition, you know, you need to take national exams to become a civil servant. And it was all about national examination. That was really, really was the foundation, the bedrock until very recently, despite the many flaws of that system of standardized testing, it has been more meritocratic than say a college application process where it doesn't depend on just scores, but everything else, then you can imagine that here connections, corruption will all really um, contribute much more uh, to that, that inequality. I'm just gonna push a little bit on this because I think it's close, close to my, uh, my interest. So, I'm going to use my own example here. Um, I have two kids, and uh, we live in an area of the um, England that has grammar schools. Mm -hmm. So grammar schools have a standardized test. These are schools that are selected on uh, test scores. So you have to get a good test score to get into the school. And um, uh, my uh, the the kid's mother and I, just like every other middle class parent in this in this part of the country, uh, one potentially moved to this part of country because of the quality of the of the grammar schools. And then we work like hell with the students to get them ready. Compared to their classmates in their primary school, they had all kinds of advantages. You know, I'm 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 working at the London School of Economics. Their mother was a, a physician. Um, we can pour in all kinds of social capital into them, and then they take the test. And of course, if you look at the economic backgrounds of almost all of the kids within the grammar school, they're all upper middle class kids. I mean, not all, but like 95%. And then they go off to university where they meet partners of the same sort of background. And it's this kind of self-perpetuating thing that that embeds this inequality. And I just, I, I'm wondering in China, given how competitive it is, whether whether you see the same dynamic starting and it's hard for me to see how it wouldn't, and then what, what are the consequences gonna be? Well, first of all, um, upward mobility has been, at least until the recent past, I, I don't know if there's really very uh, recent data, has been pretty okay relative to a lot of other advanced economies, right? Much higher upward mobility. Again, like you said, I don't know whether that would continue. But look, let me answer it this way. This is not necessarily the, the inequality that we 
necessarily want to get rid of um, because it might it might dampen growth, right? But there are other big sources of inequality that is really quite bad in the sense if it comes from unfair competition, monopolies, or illicit income, the income based on illicit gains, which was okay. very prevalent in China in the last 40 years, getting rid of that is okay. part of the prosperity agenda. But, you know, people who want to work hard and because of even family reasons, they, they you know, they succeed more. Look, you know, that's not necessarily the first kind of inequality you want to tackle. Um, but there's just lots of other things that we need to work on in China, including the geographical divide, including this connection-based thing. And I, I, I'd argue this is part of the common prosperity agenda. And hence, a lot of the regulatory crackdowns, a lot of the anti-corruption uh, campaign, um, the, you know, increasing the, the supply of housing for middle class, that gives them opportunities. Uh, 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 it's not just redistribution, but pre-distribution, as some would say, right, before okay. even concern. That would be the focus of these programs. Now, I'm not saying they will be necessarily successful, but I think they're less worried about, you know, um, who's going to succeed out of the national exam system and so forth. Yeah. Okay. And, and to answer your question, no, I think the priority still is to get rich, right? That's absolute priority. And I, I think that just um, from what I was saying in my book, it was more about maybe not the American style inequality because it is more more severe than in Europe and other countries. And there's a linkage between capital and politics uh, that you know this particular leadership in China doesn't necessarily uh, approve of. Uh, so these kind of things. Mm. Okay, I mean, uh, I appreciate you answering the question and I, and it's more of a concern and I'm probably projecting from my own uh, society. And so, uh, uh, I just hope that China can, can, um, get around that puzzle because I think again, in my limited experience, the, the push to have the kids succeed, um, does not stop once success is attained by the parents themselves. Um, and, and I can just, uh, I worry about a compounding effect, but, but let's, let's move on. I, I think that, uh, I think we spent enough time on that. Let's let, I, I cause I want to spend some time on these other fascinating issues as well. And one of the things you talk about is the decentralized economy. And, and I really want to spend a little bit of time on what you call the mayor economy. And, and can you tell us what you, what, what that is? Because I, I, I thought that that was a fascinating section of the book. What, what do you mean by when you say mayor, mayor economy? I think this gets to really the most unique aspect of China's developmental model, right? The kind of questions you asked in the first place, why was China able to defy conventional wisdom? Well, this mayor economy certainly does not feature in any of the uh, Western economic uh, paradigms. And um, what I mean by the mayor economy is that, first of all, you know, we, all, we, we, think, we tend to think about China as being extremely centralized. That is true, but I'd say that it's political centralization uh, and an extreme form of economic decentralization. So a lot of autonomy passed down to the local governments, including administrative financial fiscal power to the local government to uh, create a dynamic economy in their jurisdiction. And the political centralization is very, very crucial here because how do you manage, how are you able to control the local governments and make sure that they 
um, implement your desired national economic goals like growth and investment and environmental protection, etc. Remember that Russia also had federalism, but they did not work in line with the central government's objectives and they were corrosive powers and they wanted to have local protectionism and so forth. And central politi political centralization is important in China because um, they determine the future of the local officials. So if you're party secretary or governor or a provincial governor or a mayor, right, uh, your promotion uh, into the higher run depends on how well you've done with economy. Uh, uh, can, yeah, can I just jump in? Because I think that this was absolutely fascinating for me. So. If if a local leader performs well, they get they can be promoted to another city or region. So it'd be like if the mayor of London did a really good job, and she or he then found themselves promoted to be the leader of Poland or something like this, or a governor in Tennessee might be promoted to be the governor in Florida or California. Am I right about that? That's the kind of competition without without, without necessarily having to endure the process of elections or the uncertainty. yeah exactly. Yeah. Right? yeah, you get promoted based on your scorecard. And so for a long period of time, that was really what drove the local officials, not only to do good, but also to, to compete with each other. And the competition is really important because it keeps them in check, right? Mm. If you were going to extrapolate or you were going to, you were going to um, kind of um, uh, uh, extract uh, rents from your productive private enterprises, they're going to simply flock away and move to your neighboring province and help them contribute to GDP and investment, right? So you don't want to do that. You actually want to harness uh, them yourself. And in fact, fast forward uh, uh, three decades, which has this has been already in play today, they're trying to do everything they can to attract companies to relocate their headquarters into your uh, city. That's the mayor economy. And it's so prevalent. So I, I gave this example of NIO, which is one of the leading um, EV makers in China. Um, it's It moved its headquarters to Hefei, which is really not in one of the key cities, but it got huge benefits. And the Hefei government created an entire industrial clutter, uh, sorry, uh, cluster and supply chain around NIO. And you get hundreds and thousands of these examples. And this is why in China we see, you know, if you look at technology unicorns, they're distributed everywhere, except for the Western Central yeah. Province, but really everywhere, not just in the first tier cities, but in second tier cities. And you have Wuxi, Suzhou, Nanjing, all concentrated on different aspects of technology. Why? The mayors want to do a good job. And today it's about innovation. Um, it's still about growth and employment. And by the way, they're they're motivated. I mean, there's this agglomeration effect, right? You you attract good companies, and by yep. good companies, you don't mean those who are connected to you. We mean really good, productive companies. Why? Because they will help you grow the economy, provide employment, contribute to taxes, and the real estate that is there is worth more because of services and retail. So you're like an equity stakeholder of the entire city. So you want to not only help one good company, you want to help as many good companies as possible. So they're not incentivized necessarily just to help out the local SOEs because they're yeah. not necessarily productive. And so that incentive scheme is what made China break rules to reform. So if you remember that, you know, that in the early reform, when China was opening up to FDI and trade, they were all done by the local mayors. And once one was successful, it was um, uh, uh, it was spread uh, and copied in other cities and provinces. And that's how you got reforms growing. And then uh, afterwards, it was urbanization. It was GDP. And today it's innovation.
Yeah, I mean, it, was, it gave me great insight. So you have this kind of centralized uh, state that sets the kind of plain rules, and then you go, go and compete. And, yeah. and, and they're competing. It's not dissimilar, I guess, in the United States, sometimes a state will states will compete with each other. But it's kind of like on a whole different level where the states that are competing with each other, they can offer equity stakes, they can bring in a SOE, a state-owned enterprise that will kind of perform, it could be a junior partner in the joint venture or something like this. So it's this, it's this competition that is, that is driving this whole thing at the mayoral level. And I just think that that's a really uh, interesting insight. In the U.S., of course, different states competed for Amazon's second headquarter. Yeah. And, and that beauty contest consisted of one state giving Amazon a giant cactus, another state, you know, promising <laughs> the name to Amazon and another <laughs> give the may mayoral status to Jeff Bezos. That That's yeah. the kind of beauty context we're talking about in the U.S. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's certainly not the same kind of thing that local governments would offer uh, uh, Chinese companies. And many, many of them. We're not talking about just Tesla and Amazon. We're talking about those who haven't even made it yet, but with a lot of potential. So it's really interesting. So these these local, I mean, it's not only that they they have a richer area that they're growing and they can attract more. So there's a network effect, but it also they're pushing to get promoted themselves to a bigger and more important place. So it gives them a, a kind of non-financial incentive in, in, in some way. So you do a great job. I mean, at least for me, the, the description of these kind of intertwining interests and ownership and uh, of, of these enterprises that are happening at the local level. And that this is a good way to, because of the very tangled ownership structure and control structure, it aligns the interests and efficiency across all the stakeholders, and that's all great. But what what I was re when I was reading that, I started to become a little bit concerned about something. And you tell me whether this is unfounded. In this system, as you describe it in China, there doesn't seem to be natural breaks between the viability of the different sectors. So. If you merge all these things and align all their interests in one way, don't you risk kind of run the risk of contagion between the things? So if a if if a government if a, if a kind of if a company fails, if they're they're kind of too connected to fail, what happens then? And and you mentioned this uh, this statement too connected to fail rather than too big to fail. Maybe you can explain a little bit more by what you mean by that in the context of this of these kind of complex ownership structures and incentive structures that align through that mayoral uh, economy? Well, first of all, I just want to mention that for all the the benefits and the the, the upsides that this, you know, mayoral economy has, has um, uh, contributed to China's growth, um, there are also significant downsides. I just want to make sure that, you know, uh, this is a very unique model. Um, I think in the early stages of development, it does overcome some key institutional uh, constraints and weaknesses, which China and other developing countries have. You And that jump-started development, which many countries simply do not. And that yeah. ability to state coordination, state allocation, state mobilization, which is so underemphasized, again, in the canonical economic models, was really crucial for China's jump-starting that, that growth path. And over time, you know, the financial system is still immature, so the ability, you know, just think about it, the mayors hold the keys to a lot of the administrative powers, and the barriers, you know, for the business barriers, it's, it's, it's often very great in developing countries. So you can, you know, reduce that, smooth it along, and then help 
you know, um, match buyers and sellers and, you know, bring talent pools when these kind of features were not already functioning already in these very mature economies, I think was very, very useful. Now, the downside is some things that are starting to become very prominent now, like the local government debt, right? Now, if you yeah. want to do in your economy, you just leverage up, right? Lever up or develop or overdevelop your, your real estate. Um, also, there are new incentive problems now. Before in the past, it was GDP growth. That was a very uh, easy thing to, men uh, to measure, even though they fudged the numbers a bit, but still, you know, by and large, you know what you're talking about. Now it includes other things like environmental protection and social stability. And there are, conf there are tensions here, right, with growth. So how do you prioritize? How do you measure their performance, et cetera, um, is, is another. But I think the, the debt issue is really a feature of the political economy, which um, without solving that, I think won't solve the fundamental uh, debt overhang in China. But coming back to your, um, your network, uh, your question about the ownership structure. Well, first of all, um, the large SOE companies uh, uh, take a minority stakeholder, so not more yeah. than 20% of uh, any private companies. I, I'd say that um, that was more of a feature of the 2010s and less less so less and less so uh, uh, these days. First of all, you know the government fiscal capacity is also constrained, and like like you you know alluded to, the mixed ownership problems did create some incentive problems for for private companies. It was often beneficial to have a stakeholder a state stakeholder because you can you know tap into their 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 resources, um, but um, because they were also minority, it tended to not really have major interfering uh, strategic decisions on on the company um but you know it's a problem of too connected to fail obviously meaning that you know you have if you have these large soes or state banks or state institutions financial institutions as your stakeholder then you're more likely to be protected but to be, to be honest that was not necessarily the case as manifested in the last two years right um you had this uh, this risk of being too connected to fail but uh, quite a few of the companies who were under attack from on the regulatory front to the point that they really suffered financially had large state stakeholders. Uh, I don't need to mention the companies, but all these big ones had state backing. Um, so we don't want to see it as like there's only one department coordinating everything. In fact, the economics financial department is separate from the security propaganda department, which is separate from the foreign affairs department, and all of them have potentially differing uh, interests. So I'd say that going forward, state this mixed ownership um, phenomena is likely has probably likely peaked. Um, and as we've seen with the failing of Evergrande and lots of these big companies, when push comes to shove, uh, they're letting more of um, the fail, the failures, right? They're, they're letting letting some of these big companies go uh, just because, again, I think in the new era, uh, the moral hazard problem has become more important, uh, trying to rein these big companies in, not necessarily tech, but just because the behavior was very loose in the past um, is also setting in. But one gets the sense that the, the state is kind of walking a tightrope because the system did create moral hazards, as you said. Um, and so people took on loads of debt and because they were incentivized to, to show growth and it's easy to grow when you have free access to equity. And, and what happens is private enterprise starts to recognize that maybe their failure represents some sort of systemic risk. 
Um, and letting the firms fail can create, if the state's worried that letting them fail creates social unrest, because for example, in the property market, real estate market, one of the most common ways that people put those huge household savings that we talked about, one of the, the most popular, as I understand it, kind of retail investments was in real estate. And so if you have all of this uh, savings that's wrapped up into uh, over-leveraged real estate, and then you get, uh, again, a, it connection to the kind of too connected to fail, the failure represents rest, uh, a kind of systemic risk. Of course, the state then has to say, okay, but if we intervene here to avoid some sort of social unrest, we create even more of a moral hazard and what's going to happen next time. Now, it seems like that the state has decided to address this with the uh, the real estate industry, but is that industry unique, would you say, or or will there be something else coming along that will test this uh, this uh, willingness to alleviate moral hazard uh, with the risk of perhaps really upsetting a lot of people? They're not going to do this at the risk of creating systemic risk. Okay, they're going to the, the bottom line is to not have real estate have a hard landing or a systemic create a systemic financial risk, but they will start to make some examples of certain companies and examples in their mind would be sufficient uh, I see. to send a great warning uh, to the rest of and that's what we saw with these token companies. Uh, being kind of penalized uh, during the regulatory crackdowns. And when it's over, it's over, right? It's over, but it's set enough of a draconian, it, it, it was so draconian, it was set an example to prevent further um, misbehavior of many others. Okay, so this kind of policy by setting an example, you say that sometimes they make a big splash. The, the, the thing is, is it's not representing a huge change in overall policy per se, but it's meant to say, watch out because we aren't going to necessarily save you or all of you every time. Yeah. And, um, and if you misbehave like these do, you might be punished as well, but they're not going to punish everyone and let everybody fail to create that kind of a systemic systemic risk. Okay. So uh, again, you talk about the kind of addictive steroid of the housing market. I love this, this turn of phrase. It was really nice. And uh, a big part of this was, and maybe this is jumping into the weeds a little bit, but I, I, I found it really interesting, these local government financing vehicles. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you tell us what those were and, and how, they, how they contributed to this kind of dilemma in some ways the state faces with uh, moral hazard? Again, that's another example where, despite the very powerful engine China's unique model has created, it's also created lots of other distorted incentives. You know, one of the one of the issues why there was, uh, you know, state, um, uh, one of the reasons behind the mixed ownership structure, etc., is also the flip side is the financial system is incredibly, you know, backward. Uh, uh, if you look at the majority of the credit is intermediated by the banks. Uh, and that's a typical feature of a developing country's uh, financial system rather than through capital markets, which is more advanced economy. So only 15% of agri-credit uh, is uh, contributed by uh, direct financing. So that's why the state element also plays such a major role. It's also parallel to the fact that China's finance is still immature. Um, but the local government uh, financing of vehicles is a very interesting phenomenon. So that gets back to this tussle and you know tension between the central and local governments, right? Yes, the central government controls their promotion and their future, but there's always some 
um, you know, some local governments trying to uh, uh, spend more and hide more resources um, and, uh, you know, do more than they can. So um, th there was there was a law, a budget law in 1995 that prevented them from borrowing. So how are the local governments going to enact, you know, enact all these big programs and accrue uh, uh, GDP if they can't borrow and spend? So they use something called a local uh, government financing vehicle, which is, you know, through a corporation like an SOE, uh, you, you use land as collateral because the government, local government you, uh, owns the land and uses okay. that collateral to borrow. And it will be investment from these local financing vehicles on infrastructure, housing, you know, investing in places where maybe they shouldn't be investing uh, through these vehicles. So that shows up as corporate debt, but in fact, it's backed by the local governments. Gotcha. And that's part, of the, that's part of the shadow banking. Yeah. Uh, and, and that shadow banking really exploded and shadow banking funded a lot of these infrastructure and real estate uh, projects. That in the end didn't didn't pan yeah. out and and i guess the big crisis uh, and just for the listeners who are less familiar with china as i understand it the problem with the real estate uh uh situation is that people buy uh apartments uh on spec so these are apartments that have not been built yet and in a sense they were using this money to fund debt repayment and to fund the next generation uh building and if that kind of pyramid stops, then the whole thing can collapse. And the problem with having it collapse is you have all these people that have purchased property at very high rates, as you said, that then now have nothing. That's why it's such a dilemma, as I said, walking this tightrope, because of course, if you make those people whole again, all it does is, is re-incentivize people in the future to think if we get to a certain scale and scope, the, the state will have to bail us out. The state is interested in bailing out consumers today, not companies. Now, of course, in some way they're linked together, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. This would be focusing on the households rather than the companies, which was not necessarily the case in the past. There was so much emphasis on firms and companies and, you know, household saving, subsidizing their investment. And now with uh, this leadership, it's about protecting the households. Now, maybe the policies enacted indirectly hurt them in the end, but you know the the, the emphasis is still on the households. And so I think right. I think currently they're trying to they're going to say okay we're not going to have we're not going to tolerate a hard landing for property, but let's just adjust the policies real time. Certainly not going back to the steroid effect um, of feeling good uh, with boiled property. But, you know, trying to slowly adjust to a new equilibrium, which will take time uh, for demand and supply to, you know, equilibrate. So let's finish up with two things. First, talk about China's future, because much of the book, as we said, addressed this China puzzle, this, this, this how, how did China do it? How, how is it doing it? And a lot of this was what you called the age of kind of catching up, the increased productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And now this kind of middle income trap looms. And you argue, I think, quite uh, um, convincingly that what's needed is, you know, increased technological innovation plus economic reform, opening up competition, as you said, in the in service sector, and encouraging private private enterprise to enter some places where they aren't now now uh, there now, and this will help China avoid the trap. the The thing is, is that it seems like a lot of times other analysts will say, make the same sort of thing. So they'll say, look, um, 
you need a new set of structures in China for it to make this next leap in the economic uh, in in the economic kind of uh, value chain. You need complex and nimble policy responses to counteract entrenched interests, and you need the states fading into the background to let markets and entrepreneurs do their thing. And you need the state to start, as you said, reflect people's wants rather than telling them what they should want, which will include more political representation. And many times I read analysts that make those same arguments, and then they say, and that's why China is going to struggle. <laughs> but you make that same argument and you say, and that's why I'm optimistic about China. I, I want to know how 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 do you maintain that optimism? What gives you that that kind of feeling that this is this is the great moment of opportunity rather than uh oh what's going to happen next? Well, I certainly think it's a challenge. I don't know if I wanted to express optimism that I'm trying to <laughs> overcome this challenge, but to state that this is the kind of challenge that we should be discussing rather than the many others um, that have been put forth. But look, you know, first of all, I just want to say some a few things. I haven't written the book, but uh, as I mentioned, we're talking a lot of, about a lot of numbers, a big number here, right? Almost a billion people still trying yeah. to get middle income by international standards. They're they're living under three hundred dollars per month. Um, China's productivity gap with the U.S. Right by the time economies like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong kind of leveled off their growth, they were at eighty to eighty-five percent of uh, U.S.'s productivity levels, TFP level. China today is twenty percent. Okay. Mm. Uh, that's a big gap. Tertiary education services, uh, you know, 176 migrant workers who, if with the proper urban protection, social protection, can unleash an additional at least a trillion RMB of consumption, billion, hundreds of billions of dollars every year. Those are the numbers we're still talking about. I, I don't, I think that's the, the most important challenge. Uh, for now, again, you know, the majority of the Chinese people are still, despite all the, the conversation we had about the urban elites, are thinking about what's, you know, oh, can I get a good education for my kids? Will be I be able to own an apartment in a city with proper social infrastructure? That's still the prevalent prevailing concern of the vast majority of Chinese, even today. And therefore, I think um, still going forward in the next 10 years, 20 years before this is, can be accomplished is still a very pragmatic one. I didn't mention that political participation and all of that is very important. We've seen that in many social instances where the people want to express their views. And I'd argue that society revealing their preferences um, better and better in a way that there's a feedback loop between the government and society has significantly changed in the last 20, 30 years, thanks to things like social media and so forth, which the government really cares about because they still need to make sure the people on by and large are happy. That's still the source of their legitimacy. I, I did. I just want to mention this that I thought the other day was interesting that because of an absence of a religion, the Communist Party has to have even more legitimacy around things like, you know, um, uh, economy and things that you deliver. So they, they're working very hard to be um, uh, 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 at least responsive, right? We, we don't have to agree with all their policies. But, but so that being the primordial concern means that the reforms are really important. If the reforms happen, the economy still marches forward, then I'd say that is that solves 80% um, of the, the near-term challenge. And a lot of that has to do with whether China can sustain the productivity 
increased where a lot of middle income countries have failed and that productivity increase well partly i'm very optimistic it's talking about optimism i i am somewhat optimistic about china's innovative capacity uh even in the cutting edge area but that's probably for another podcast another conversation and i'd say these things are so first and foremost the most important i think the other things you know greater representation politically for the middle income and um, that complexity will be will be brewing in the background but as we still have a billion people trying to make it uh, I think if we deliver, if China delivers that, then the other issues will be somewhat dwarfed. If they cannot deliver that, then I think the other issues will be, will come to more to the fore. And the reason why I'm still cautiously optimistic is just looking at the track record, the ability to change policies have, were they to be committed and convinced that those were the right ones and with the right political behavior incentives in place, they will be enacted. But I do put a question mark on the end on the, on the ladder, which is the incentive problem that China is facing today. But again, maybe another open-ended question that we can't uh, completely uh, answer and solve today. I think that's a good place to, to end it. Uh, just to, as you say, the, the your discussion on technology going from what you call zero to one to one to N technology uh, is fascinating. I'd recommend that people read it, and, uh, but I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to get you out of here on one final question. Um, and this we ask all of our guests is what's one book or TV show or movie or play or podcast, whatever, it doesn't make a difference, serious or not serious, fiction, nonfiction, what have you consumed in the last year that you recommend to our listeners? I have to say that I really enjoyed watching Guys and Dolls the, the, in theater. <laughs> yeah. Only because is, there's a historical part, which is when I first became a you know exchange student in the US at the age of 14, I went to Horace Mann. And I was stunned by the fact that my high school put out this play uh, uh, guys and dolls, and they were all dancing and singing. I've never seen that in my communist youth league school. And so I, I mentioned that because of that, that connection. And also the fact that it's, 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 it's great. And I enjoyed it. Oh, that's so funny. Do you know an interesting little fact of serendipity here? When I went to high school, we put on guys and dolls and I was <laughs> in guys and dolls and I played the role of big Julie uh, and uh, we had go. one. I had that classic American uh, high school uh, musical experience. So we've shared something in common. Yes, I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it already. <laughs> All right. KU, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you. And thank you for your uh, wonderfully um, uh, thoughtful questions. Oh, it's my pleasure. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.